You are listening to the Artistic Finance Podcast, Show 63. On today's show, I interview musical theater director Rob Schneider. He explains step-by-step how he produces cabarets in New York City. He walks us through the budget and gives caution and encouragement to anyone wanting to put on a cabaret. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome, everybody. A special welcome to my patrons, which, by the way, today we have Rob Schneider, and this is the first time that I've ever had a patron on the show. <laughs> I, I bribed my way in. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with that. Rob is just a wonderful human being and decided to become a patron. I'm Ethan Steimel. I'm your host, as always, and I'm welcoming Rob Schneider to the podcast. Welcome, Rob. Thank you, Ethan. Uh, first of all, I, I know that we get to collaborate every once in a while, but I have to say that I am a huge fan of this podcast. I tell all my students, I'm like, you need to listen to artistic finance because it is so wonderful that we're breaking down those barriers and walls of finances that apparently we're not supposed to talk about in the arts. I think if everyone was just more open about like what their numbers were, we would have a totally different business model. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I'm happy you're doing it. And also, I'm so glad you said that because I always like we sort of touch on that. that It's taboo topic and we're not allowed to talk about it. I did get an email. My most recent episode was about livable wage and why we need to be paying it to people. And I did get an anonymous email from somebody at a theater somewhere that everyone would recognize. They were very unhappy with what we talked about in that episode. Why were they unhappy? They said that I'm perpetuating a myth that if theaters were just more ethical, then that would solve all the problems. And and that if they were more ethical, they would pay more money. Which is true. <laughs> it is true. And, but I understand their perspective. Anyway, so all I'm saying is it is taboo. Sometimes I forget because I'm so willing to talk about it. I don't think there's anything wrong with discussing how much somebody makes especially in our field, because the rates change depending on the whims of people. You know, you can talk to a lawyer at this law firm and a lawyer at that firm, and they're probably going to tell you, oh, they're making probably the same amount of money, as opposed to being a lighting designer at this theater, as opposed to that theater, where it's such a disproportionate gap between the two amounts. So I think the more we talk about numbers, the better off we're going to be. I agree. Also, because everybody receives different pay. So I'll do a job somewhere for $400 and I'll do it somewhere else for $4,000. There's just so many factors that go into it and none of those is wrong. Like I shouldn't feel guilty for doing the one for 400. People say, oh, you're lowering the wage for everyone. But it's like, no, 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 it's more complicated than that. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason. And then it's up to you to figure out if the reasons why you're getting less money are going to benefit you in some way, shape or form. Yeah, it is complicated, but we need to know what those numbers are. Okay, so I I like to start every episode with this. We're recording this on June 15th, 2021. And for the first time in 15 months, I'm actually feeling optimism that there's an end in sight to this COVID-19 pandemic. And then in New York City at this current moment, there's a crazy mayor's race with 13 different candidates. And we are for the first time ever, we have ranked choice voting, which means we can vote for more than one. And then, of course, the Black Lives Matter slow burn is still going on. And the Stop Asian Hate campaign is also still going on. So that's a little bit of a historical backdrop for anybody listening 10 years from now. I love that. Rob, 
Today, we're going to be talking about producing cabarets because that's something that you know a lot about. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and then maybe incorporate or wrap up with what your cabaret producing experience is? Sure. Uh, I'm a very boring person. I will try to keep this as exciting and as short as possible so we can talk about numbers. Um, I grew up in L.A. Um, I was an actor out in Los Angeles for a while. Uh, it was not my cup of tea, although I did do one uh, Levi's Blue Jeans commercial that put me through college. Um, and it was only shown in the Netherlands. So if you ever see a little a little chubby boy with glasses showing off his jeans, just know that's what paid for my bachelor's. So thank you, Levi's Blue Jeans. I did that, but when I was in high school, I felt more comfortable behind the table. I was doing some backstage work, directing and all that stuff, and that to me felt right. So I sort of transitioned in college to be doing more behind the scenes things. I got my bachelor's of political science at uh, California Lutheran University, where I think I hold the record of still being the only gay Jew on campus. So hoping no one's gonna break that record. Um, and then immediately following undergrad, I switched over to Penn State University for grad school where I got a master's in directing, but their degree was very specific. It was an MFA in directing for the musical theater stage, which at that time, and I think this still might be the case, there's no other master's program in the world that offers that specified of a terminal degree. So I was there for three years and then on my way out, a teacher got sick and I, they asked, would you you know, teach for a semester? And a semester turned into four years. And while I was there, I created a lot of online content. When I turned 30, I was like, I need to leave because it felt odd being the youngest member on the faculty by many, many years. And I knew I was gonna be taking a really, really massive pay cut. But I said, is there a way that I can still teach online classes but not be in, Penn State to do it? The answer was yes. So that's what allowed me to transition up to New York to actually pursue my career. Because I was so interested at such a young age, a lot of people just didn't give me opportunities because they were like, you're too young to do, you're too young to lead a room or you're too young to produce a show, which makes total sense. So because other people weren't giving me opportunities, I had to create my own opportunities. Most of the stuff that I've done has been self-manufactured has been done out of necessity because nobody else was giving me the opportunity to do it. While I was worried about directing, I was also keeping a producer's hat on my head, keeping track of numbers and, and figuring out financially what was viable and all that stuff. So I was in New York. I got, I got to New York. There's a, a wonderful cabaret out in uh, New York called Feinstein's 54 Below, which is co-owned, I should say, by the great Michael Feinstein, who is, you know, the god of the cabaret world. And it's this wonderful space on 54th Street between 7th and 8th. The New York Times calls it Broadway's living room. Just about every single major performer will come to do a cabaret there. The uh, director of programming there is a genius, and her name is Jennifer Ashley Tepper. Uh, and if you don't know Jennifer, you should get familiar with her because she is just incredible. And they were looking for a programming producer to work with her. And I had known Jen, and I was like, oh, I said, I'll apply. And... Uh, I'll do one show, and if they're happy and I'm happy, maybe we can continue this to working, because I knew nothing about cabaret, and I knew nothing about producing cabaret in New York City, and one show has turned into 70-plus shows, and that's how I got into that world. All right, a couple things about your story here, which is there's another director I work with named Nathan Brewer. Yes! Also went to Penn State. You both, well, you're both young, a.k.a under 50. Thank you. <laughs> I've worked with you as lighting designers for shows that you guys have both directed. 
you both are very knowledgeable of musical theater history and of every show. And so you mentioned being young, but you know so much about musicals of the 50s and the 40s and the, you know, and both of you do. And it's something I've noticed about both of you. And it sort of makes sense now that you said you had that very specific directing for musical theater. Yeah, you know, and I'll be honest with you. And I, I you know, I've never spoken to Nathan about this because I know he grew up in Zelianople, Pennsylvania. And, and I grew up in Thousand Oaks, California, and I can at least speak for myself, which is, you know, we, this was pre-internet. If you wanted to learn anything about theater, you had to go to the library to do, you could only get it in books. I remember my parents dropping me off at the local library and I would sit there and I would just pour over like old theater world books and old history books and old scripts. And that's, I think, why I might be younger. Thank God for saying younger. If I talk to a 70-year-old, yeah. I'm not surprised that they know about No Strings. You know, so many yeah. musicals. And for us, I mean, for it was in our library. We absorbed everything we possibly could. And I think that's why, you know, we might be younger, but be like, Seesaw opened in 1973 and it was called the Eurus Theater. They didn't name it Gershwin yet. I'm helping John Lee Beatty archive all his sketches. He's looking over all the encore shows he did and he comes across No Strings. And I say, oh, No Strings. Yeah, I know that show. And we both start singing. La -da 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 oh, that's, that's great. He knew all the lyrics and we both just sang it there in his living room. It was sort of like a bizarro experience. That was amazing. That's really fun. He's such a good guy. Oh my God, I'm so talented. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Um, okay, and another thing about your story, which is you said you've done over 70 cabarets. So here's my story. I've never produced a cabaret. Great. But I did once in St. Charles, Missouri, produce an evening evening of skits. Great. I can't remember what the money situation was, but I guarantee you I did not make any money. <laughs> sure, sure. Of course. But anyway, so I'm so happy we now have an expert here and you're going to tell us all about how we can make lots and lots and lots of money. I'm going to just tell you how to lose money in New York as opposed to in Missouri. <laughs> okay, perfect. Before we talk cabarets, could you describe your demographics for us? I, I identify as male. I'm 38. Caucasian, relationship status separated, master's degree in California. Creative and financial personality. What is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? I love seeing an event where the audience's imagination is complicit in the success of the event. I'm not like a huge fan of seeing like a big budget musical where everything is so literal. I kind of am happy with, hey, these are two cubes and they represent a car and now we turn them this way and they represent a restaurant. So I don't know if that answers your question. It definitely answered a question. I'm trying to think of an example of if you, maybe bad example, but Our Town. Our, no, Our Town is a perfect example. Our Town is a perfect example of that. In some ways, company, like Stephen Sondheim's company is an example of that, where it's the audience has to fill in the blanks. That to me excites me more than anything. Okay, like the opposite of spectacle. <laughs> From a directorial point of view, I am not good with spectacle. I am really not good with managing the set comes in here and then, the, you know, there's 400 costumes here and the lights have to, you know, there's a cue for every beat. Like that just doesn't do it for me. I'm more actor focused. So anything that can stay on the actors is where I feel successful. Okay, now we're going down a rabbit hole of directing styles, but I've worked with other directors who, and this is plays, not musicals, but it's like, okay, actors, go do your thing, and then they choreograph the transitions from act one to act two like nobody's business. And it's sort of like the opposite of you. <laughs> no, I mean, I love doing transitions because I find those really, really fun in that world. Doing something like, I don't know, like say a Lion King or... Uh, 
one, like a, like a Tina, Tina Turner one. That I would just feel so overwhelmed by. All right, so you and I need to do a show on a Revolve because that's a fun transition with great, great ease. <laughs> great, somebody send us a Revolve. Well, nobody uses them anymore, so I think there's lots out there that we could just pilfer. <laughs> great, as John yeah. if he has one. Uh, okay, so final personality question for you. Are you bad or good with money? Professionally, I'm great with money. Personally, I'm not great with money. Professionally, I'm really great with money. Personally, I'm not great with money. Professionally, I know it's not my money, and I know that I'm going to have to be accountable to other people for it. I'm usually a lot more cautious. Personally, I have this feeling, I'm like, you go around once, you might as well enjoy it. So, you know, if I have like no money in my bank account, I will go, I'll figure out a way of doing like two concerts to pay for the fact that, you know, I want to go take a trip to Boston or something. I hate that idea that money has to limit what you want to do in life. I don't want to be one of those people at the end of my life that, you know, is sitting on a pile of money. But I was like, I never did anything with my life. I never enjoyed anything. Because I, and you know people like that. We all do. I relate to those people so much, but I don't, that I'm with you. Like, I want to just enjoy you know, I could get hit by a truck tomorrow. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, it, you know, the amount of money in my wallet or my bank account didn't stop, you know, that truck from hitting me. I want to enjoy it. Professionally, I'm very different because th I, that, you know, that's money that uh, hopefully I'm making somebody money. Hopefully people are being paid what they're actually worth. Hopefully investors would want to invest again. So for that, I have a totally different mindset financially but personally i'm just no i'm just not very good with it all right so if there's any investors or producers out there rob is really good with money <laughs> if you want him to produce something for you <laughs> i'm cautious i'm cautious <laughs> um okay so now let's talk about those cabarets and since i know nothing about producing cabarets well actually a pre-question when we say cabaret there's the musical cabaret there's moulin rouge over in paris yes yes when we say you're producing a cabaret at 54 below what is the what does the evening look like so usually it's going to be one performer um and the idea that people go to a cabaret for is its intimacy there's a difference i think between seeing somebody like the brilliant oh my gosh patty lapone on the stage of a broadway theater which is incredible but then being so close to her, you can touch her. And the ability for her to feel like she can scale back her performing style because she doesn't have to hit the back row of the St. James Theater every night. She just has to hit maybe, you know, 24 feet from where she's actually uh, standing and singing. So people come to Cabaret for an intimacy. And there's a whole bunch of massive names in Cabaret that have never, uh, that don't have Broadway credits or don't have major Broadway names behind them. That would be people like Marilyn May, who's like in her 90s and still performing. And so that's what you're coming for. You're coming for an intimate experience. You can't do cabaret in a, in a big place. Okay, this is fantastic. And, I, and I, my final question about cabarets, it's now more interesting, the answer I'm anticipating, just because of this intimacy you, you brought up. Actually, I'm just going to jump there because I was going to end it with, can you and I figure out a cabaret to do on Broadway? <laughs> Like an evening of. You've I don't think you can. I mean, you know, like the, I hate to say this because it's not even that close, but like the the Bruce Springsteen stuff where it's just Bruce Springsteen on a stage and it's acoustic. People are going because they want the intimacy of that. That's like the closest cabaret thing you might be able to find. Also in cabaret, there's another environment. You know, you're eating while the person is performing. You're drinking. It should really, a good cabaret should feel 
you're in this person's living room and they just happened to get up and was like, I want to sing a song. And I feel like like Broadway has a formality about it. The cabarets don't. Well, I'm just in the search for a Broadway credit for lighting design Great. or anything. Great. Uh, <laughs> Great. So I was like, if we could just do a one evening cabaret, but I now realize I'm trying to make You're... something happen that can't happen. <laughs> On your deathbed, you'll be like, I never had a cabaret. And then your head will fall <laughs> and that will be it. Okay. So now the first real question about cabarets, how do you produce one? Can you sort of walk us through maybe using 54 below as an example since you've done so many there? I mean, the first thing you need to have is, it's going to sound very basic, but the first thing you need to have is the idea. And then you have to think, is this idea worth people coming out to spend like a hundred bucks for? Because at 54, you you have to pay for the ticket, plus there's a food and beverage minimum. So you have to go, would people be willing to come out for this? If the answer is yes, then the next thing you need to do is find what I like to call an anchor name. Is there somebody who regardless of what they're singing, people will come out for. That's like a Patti Lapone type situation where it doesn't matter if she's singing Golden Age songs or if she's singing Alanis Morissette, which she hasn't done, but I would love to hear that. I would like to, I want to hear her sing You Want to Know Now so bad. You, that you know that there's a, a loyal audience that will follow her in whatever she's doing. So you try to find an anchor name. A lot of the shows that I do are bigger than a one-person show. My feeling is, is the more names in it, the more potential audience members, therefore the more profit. So I try to avoid the one person shows. I was walking behind somebody on the streets of New York today and they had a t-shirt that said October 11th, I don't know what year, but it said Jay-Z and Beyonce. Great. And I thought, wow, that would be an amazing concert. It, it, it taps into that principle of more than one name. Like yeah. Beyonce, okay, you had me. But then Jay-Z, oh my gosh. Absolutely, absolutely, you're absolutely correct. The more people you can get involved in one of these, you want to make it an event. Living in New York City, you have so much competition. You have Broadway, Off-Broadway, Madison Square Garden, and then you have tons of cabaret spaces. So you have to say, is this special enough to make everybody else go? I'll put everything else second, and this event has to be first. So it's the idea, is there an anchor name that goes along with it? And then it's about budgeting, budgeting the show. So like at 54, I'll usually budget anywhere between $2,500 to $3,500. And if you're looking to do a cabaret, you should probably budget for about twenty-five to 3000 And is that all prepaid expenses? Like, are you paying the actors before or like right at opening? Like, aka before you get the ticket money back? I will come to an agreement with the actors. I always try to do favored nations. That's just easiest. What is Favored Nations, just in case anybody doesn't know? So that means everyone who's involved on stage is getting the same amount of money, regardless of their clout, regardless of their name, regardless of their credits. So everyone gets the same amount. That's how I operate. I don't, and I don't deviate from that. And I've lost, you know, some good people because they wanted more. And it's just, I can't do that. So I will pay my performers after the concert. I like to go up and say thank you personally and give them their cash. Then there's the band. You have to figure out, you know, that, well, first of all, you need a music director. Your music director usually can get anywhere from 350 to 500. And then if you want to have a saxophonist or a drummer, I usually pay them $100 a service. You came to rehearsal, that's $100. You came to the performance, that's $100. And for me, I count the $100. I'm sorry, not a services, but days worked. So if you came to rehearsal on Friday, but then on Saturday you did sound check in the performance, you're getting $200. 
Does that make sense? Because you got a hundred on Friday, a hundred on Saturday. Do you have like a standard five hundred dollars for performer, or does it vary? Oh, it varies. It absolutely varies. If it's a big name and it's just me producing the big name, I will give them a guarantee of like fifty percent of the of the profits. More often than not, though, it's me working with like you know ten or fifteen different people, which means if I have a thousand dollars for cast and I have ten actors they each have to get $100. If I have 20 actors, they all get $50. The numbers drastically change. I, I won't say who this was, but God bless her. I once did a concert with a very famous Tony Award-winning actress who I was like, you don't need to be in this concert because you, you could be doing 90 million other better things. And she got paid $15, $15. And I always feel guilty, but they know what the money is going into it. So it's never a surprise. It's never a surprise. Interesting. So you say you had like a, a big name with like five ensemble members mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that all six people would get the same money. It's not like you're going to give them the lead more money and then everyone else favor nations. That does happen. And then what I will do is, is I will explain to the ensemble because your work is less. They don't have as much stage time as the soloist. You're getting a reduced rate, but you're all getting paid the same amount. And I've never had a problem with that. Everyone understands that. And what I've learned to do, and this is a piece of advice if you're producing on a large scale like this, I always tell people, we'd like you to be in the concert, a stipend is provided. So that way I don't give you the number right off the bat. So that way, if I gave you a number and I didn't make that money, then now I'm really out a lot of money because I've guaranteed to pay you a certain amount. So then that has to come out of my pocket. So being able to say a stipend is provided then at the end, I can be like, okay, this is how much everyone is going to get. There have been times where a performer will say to me, well, what is the stipend? What is the exact amount? And I'll be up front and say, it totally depends on, you know, what's left over. And I don't think I've ever had anyone drop. I don't think I've ever had anyone go, oh, I can't do that. If they're performing in this venue, it's because they have some free time and they want to they want to do something fun. Well, and also just the word stipend sort of implies lower end of the pay spectrum. Yeah. Not giving the number, yep. saying stipend is giving them enough information of, if you can get on a Broadway show or something, do that. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, and you and you will be comp- you will be compensated in some way, shape, or form. This I'll be honest with you. What's hard is is that because I produce these shows through Fifty Four Below, Fifty Four Below gives me a budget. Here's you know three thousand dollars. It has to cover everything. You can't get more than this. Spend it as you wish. And if I ever go over, it comes out of my pocket. And so I, I try to avoid that. Okay, so you have performers, musical director drummer and piano the music director usually also plays piano for you as well and that's included in the 500 dollars fee these are only the numbers that i work with there, you know somebody might write in and go that's too much or that's too little I, i'll be honest i always think it's too little it's what i can do and usually it'll be a combo so it's piano bass and drums those are usually the three we might throw in a fourth if we have money and we want a specific texture. Okay, so then the only other thing I would say, lighting and sound or stage manager? More, well, yeah, I mean, the stage manager in some de facto way is kind of the producer. You kind of don't want to bring on an extra person just because you're, you're spending money that I don't think you need to be spending, honestly. For a cabaret, stage managers are wonderful and I love stage managers. They're, you don't really need a stage manager for a cabaret. All they're really doing is saying, are you ready now? Great. It's time to start. And that's it. Nine times out of 10, when you rent a venue, the venue comes with its own lighting and sound people. They're automatically provided in the rental. 
they're the ones that are running the lights and they're the ones that are running the sound. So you really don't need a stage manager to oversee any of that. Okay. Well, you mentioned venue, venue rental. 54 Below, you were working for 54 Below. So I guess you didn't have to worry about the rental per se in the budget. No, but there are some shows that I did at 54 that were not part of a 54 thing. It was my own project. Uh, where I did have to rent the space. So I know this varies, and 54 Below is a, a nice venue. Yeah. There's a, there's plenty of not nice venues that would be less, but roughly, what is the sort of price agreement there? Usually, you have, uh, and I, I'm, gonna, I'm so sorry, because I haven't done this in a while, and things might be changing after the pandemic. I want to say, God, and don't quote me, I feel like it's, <laughs> don't quote me as I'm saying this on air. <laughs> I feel like it was a 60-40 split so here was the thing. Yeah, I don't want someone to listen to this and be like, I bet I got to get 60-40 because I don't want to. No, no, yeah. but it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a flat, you didn't have to pay them $3,000 for a three-hour time slot. They took part of the ticket. Oh, slot. yeah. I mean, they have they make up their money first. And so ideally what happens is, is once they've hit their nut, once they've hit their number, then anything beyond that, they're going to give to you. Pro- and they'll probably take it. I mean, they're going to take a cut of the profits. The venue has to get paid first before they turn their stuff over to you. So when you're factoring the budget, you're sort of looking at like, okay, the first $1,500 is going straight to them. Yeah. And then after that, it's a 60-40. Pretty much. You get 60, they get 40? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, because Joe's Pub, I was looking into Joe's Pub for a thing. I want to say they sort of have a flat rate situation, plus a food and beverage minimum for the audience member. Anyway, it's it's pretty expensive over at Joe's Pub. Yeah. Oh, no, Joe, no Joe's Pub is expensive. You have to make sure that whatever your cabaret is, you have the venue that fits it. If you're a really young, young person and you want to do like an evening of of your music, 54 is probably not the place to go for you because it's very expensive. And and 54 has an environment about it. It It's supposed to feel classy. And if you're like really rough and that's not a, you know, that's your aesthetic, it's going to work against you. So you should probably look at someplace like the cutting room or uh, uh, Don't Tell Mamas or something like that. Or the duplex. Or the duplex. Or, or producer's club. Yeah, yeah. Or if you're like fancy, fan- like if you're Christine Ebersole with her Tony Awards and name above the marquee, you're probably not gonna go to Don't Tell Mama to do your performance. That doesn't fit your aesthetic. That's where I see people also make a lot of mistakes which is their show is not suited to the right room. Well, and I, and I will also say those people, it's not like they're doing anything wrong, but. There's also a venue situation of what venue is available on the date that you want. And- totally. And I'm, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. My, to me, I think the venue is more important than the date. I know some people that get, you know, oh my God, I have, like, it has to be June 1st. It has to be June 1st. And the only thing available on June 1st is Green Room 42. And maybe your vibe isn't Green Room 42. You know, and Green Room 42 is fantastic. And, and the young guy that runs it, Dan Dunlow, he's a, he's a genius. But maybe your vibe isn't right for that room. So the venue's more important than the date, in my opinion. A.K.A. Ethan Steimel, when he did an evening of skits in St. Charles, Missouri, the high school gymnasium was the appropriate venue. <laughs> the oh, date didn't I, matter. I just had to get that gymnasium. I should also tell people, I should also tell people, before you pick a date, Google that date and just make sure... There's nothing happening <laughs> on that day. We were doing a show at 54. There was this musical in the 70s that was god-awful called Rockabye Hamlet. It was Hamlet, but set to rock music. And it's something else, my friend. We decided, let's do it in concert. And we picked the date, which was April 1st. 
And maybe five days before we were supposed to open, they're like, we have to cancel this. We have sold one ticket. And I was trying to do my research. I didn't realize it. April 1st was a couple of things. It was Passover, it was Easter, and it was the day Jesus Christ Superstar was on NBC Live. Yes, I watched that. I did not go out that evening. Yes, and on top of that, I was telling people, I was like, why? I said, I know that you you talk about this flop show all the time. Like, why didn't you come see it? And they were like, oh, we thought it was a joke because it was on April 1st. Like, who would do this show? Oh, it's on April 1st. That's a joke. So check, Google your dates. That is amazing. We thought it was a joke. Oh, wow. Yeah, Google your That's dates. amazing. Yeah. In my mind, anything you can put a credit card in and the money disappears, that is not a joke. <laughs> no, 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 we're being serious. <laughs> Please come see this show. But that is actually leads right to this question. How do you attract an audience? Nowadays, social media. It's really social media. And I should say it's your demographic. It's your demographic. Uh, if this is horrible, but this is how I think of it, so please forgive me. If your email still is at AOL.com, I'm going to market you through either print mail or I'm going to market you through like a newsletter that I can send electronically. If you're younger than that, it's going to be social media based. But if it's an older performer, you're going to aim for print marketing. You're going to aim for electronic newsletter. If it's younger, it's social media, and it all comes from the performers. The performers have to always be putting stuff up on social media saying that the concert's happening. They sell the tickets. They sell the tickets. R rarely, rarely do audiences go to the calendar of one of these clubs and says, oh, I wonder what's coming up. Usually, it's a social media alert of some sort that triggers them to know that the event is coming. Good, 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 good tips here. Good tips for when I do my cabaret. Um, right. <laughs> so the the podcast isn't out yet, but I talked to Jim Jamiro on the podcast. Yes, Jim told me. He, all uh, right, if anybody hasn't listened to that one, he was previously the CEO of the Disney Channel. Yeah. And I, I asked him jokingly, but not jokingly, I said, hey, about my podcast, uh, any advice you can give me? And he gave me some really good advice, which was you need to market it. Yeah. Yeah. And and he didn't say any specifics on like how to market, blah, 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 but just market it, period. Well, our, yeah, no, and uh, here's an example of this. Our our theater company that Jim and I run together, our demographic is older. So we do very little social media, but we do lots of mailings, tons of mailings. We know that uh, our audience will not see it if it's on social media. Just to recap how you produce a cabaret, an idea. What's the idea? Then venue or 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 performers star oh, okay. performer. I yeah. So idea performer venue finances because well, the performer dictates the venue. I don't really want to put George Salazar at Birdland. You know, if you know who George Salazar is, he's very popular with a very young demographic, and Birdland feels like an old nineteen forties you know, jazz and supper club. You don't want to put those two together. Okay, I, I don't think I've ever been to Birdland, but I I thought it was only jazz. No, they they do a lot of stuff. They do a lot of stuff. They do. They have a lot of musical theater performers. I think Jim Caruso's Cast Party, which is a pretty big staple in New York. I'm pretty sure that's there as well. Yeah, and they, and they do improv too, because I got invited to an improv thing. At oh, fun, fun. And I know they have 
they used to have the main room and recently they put in um, a second room downstairs that's even smaller, which I went to, which is nice. Okay, so this next question is, what do I wear to the opening of the cabaret or to the cabaret if I'm producing it? Oh, I always wear a suit and tie. I want I want people to know if there's a problem, go to the bald man in the tie. <laughs> All right, suit and tie, no exceptions. No, you. I, I don't, even, even if I'm producing a show that feels like younger, suit and tie. It just, I, I don't know. It just makes me feel like I'm in charge and people are like, that man looks like he's, he has something to do with everything. Okay. So say somebody listens to this. <laughs> if they haven't <laughs> shut it off by now. <laughs> what is this guy talking about mailing things? What the heck? What kind of, what podcast is this? Is this from the eighties? Is this some retro show? <laughs> Let's just say a younger version of me in St. Charles, Missouri listens to this podcast and decides to put a cabaret on historic Main Street in a nice little basement venue. Good, good. Okay, so they're doing this. They're getting everything. They got their star, their St. Charles, Missouri star. They're getting people. They're advertising. Yeah. And then they get they get overwhelmed. And they sort of had a panic because they're like, we've only sold nine tickets of our 40 tickets that we have to sell. And we're three days out and they're panicking and they're just overwhelmed. Somebody pulled out of the cast. Anything you can tell them in those sort of moments, because I suspect you've had a lot of those. Oh, yes. How can you calm them? Or yeah, One, prioritize. Prioritize what's really the biggest problem we're facing right now. Number two, it's just a show. It's just a show. No one's lives are going to be lost if you lose some money or if nobody came to see the show. That's number two. Number three, though, is, okay, what is a marketing angle you have not hit yet? And what is the demographic that's buying it? So if you're looking and you go, okay, wow, it seems like the people that are buying this are all on like the younger spectrum. Great. Flood social media. You should probably release some clips of people singing uh, so they know what they're getting. What they're, what they're getting. And the, the casts now have to be your publicists. Each cast member is their own social media PR machine. Anytime I use anyone, I tell them right from the forefront, like, you're going to have to help us with a lot of publicity on this. Get them to amp it up. What can the club do to help amp it up? Are you willing to forego some of your profits for the club to take a bigger chunk and not cancel you? You know, the, like I said, the big things are prioritize. It's just a show. The reason I'm saying find out who the audience is is because if if those are the ones that are interested, then you know who needs to be targeted. If you don't see anyone over the age of 65 purchasing, don't spend time trying to find ways to market to people over the age of 65. They know about it. They don't want to come. It's the young people that want to come and vice versa. All right. So I think that's everything that I had about cabaret. So I'm going to I'm going to shift topics a little bit, but before we do that, is there anything more about cabaret producing you wanted to fill us in on? Oh, the la- the last thing, yes. I'm going to can I can I give one little piece of advice and then and then we can move on and I don't know if this is, this applies to the young Ethan in in Missouri. Um if you're doing a cabaret, you have two priorities. Your priority number 1 is the audience, making sure that they've had a good time. And number two, your priority is the venue because you want to be so good that they're going to ask you back or you make so much money they can ask you back. The priority is never you. And I think the mistake a lot of people make with Cabaret is it, it's about me singing the songs of Stephen Sondheim because I want to sing the songs of Stephen Sondheim. Guess what? Everyone does that. 
I want to talk about my journey coming to New York and living my dreams. Everyone has a show like that. And it's your therapy. I'm not paying for your therapy. I want to see you tell me a story. I want it to be universal. I, you, this is my therapy. But you coming up on stage being like, and mommy never loved me, hit it. And then, you know, going into a song from a chorus line, it doesn't do anything. So whatever you, if you want to do a cabaret, be specific and be unique and please don't do what everyone else is doing. That's the only way people will come. You mentioned, can I, can I tell you what you emailed me in the, uh, your suggestion of a, of a cabaret? Yes, yes. Because <laughs> this is a great idea. Ethan said in his email, I don't know if you were joking, if you were being serious, but you were like, can we do an evening of Roger Miller? That's brilliant because no one's doing any. There's no concert. There's no Roger Miller concert. That's great because then you're like, oh my gosh, there's a whole country Western audience that could be tapped into for this. Or there might be closeted country and Western like lovers that are like, oh, they're, they're doing Roger Miller. I'm going to come out for that. So that's a brilliant idea because it's specific. Okay, so that can be our Broadway show, an evening of Roger Miller. That can be our Broadway show. That can be our Broadway show. And if you want a good laugh, I, I don't know this person, so I'm going to give them a plug. There's an Instagram, and it's an actor, and his name is Rocky Patera. And he does fake cabaret shows, but bad cabaret. It's him in front of a green screen just doing like what a bad cabaret show would be. It is hysterical, and it's really funny because you're like, I've seen this. I know exactly what he's doing. And just don't do what Rocky's doing because because everyone else is doing it. But yeah, so that's your, your loyalty is to the audience and then the venue. You are the last person you should be worrying about. Okay. And I'm going to say the most basic thing because I, as a lighting designer, have been to a number of strikes, like strike at the end of the show, we're tearing it all down. I have seen people mistreat venues so much it boggles my mind that the venue lets that company specifically theater companies back into the space yeah clean up after yourself you know you're a guest you're a guest this is you know you're a guest in someone's home why would you trash it or why would you be mean to the staff I've seen some performers scream at lighting designers and scream at sound designers and scream at the mater d like, what the, f- oh, I don't know. Can we use bad language? I apologize. You can, you're allowed to. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know, no one's going to want you back. You're, 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 this, we don't want you back in our home. <laughs> you ruined the party. Because it's like, I, you know, venues seem to have no problem getting people in. But it's like, if ever they're in a situation where it's like, oh, let's, uh, you know, see if somebody so-and-so wants to do a show here again. I will tell you, even though the venues are in quote-unquote competition with another each other, Everyone talks to each other. I mean, there have been times that like, I know somebody who's not the easiest to work with that's a green room 42. And I might send Dan a message over there and be like, hey, just so you know, you might want to keep an eye out for blah, blah, blah. You know, and I, or I'll get the same thing, which is like, oh, you put him in the show, be careful. You think that they're in competition and in, you know, they are obviously, but they're also helpful to one another. Okay, so... I just want you to say uh, on this podcast, on the record, that you and I are going to do a cabaret test of Roger Miller, an evening of Roger Miller. I am, pr- I am proud to announce <laughs> on Artistic Finance with Ethan Steimel that uh, Ethan and I are co-producing an evening of Roger. It's called Miller Time. It's Miller Time. <laughs> 
and it's an e- it's an evening of the music of Roger Miller, and it will be the first cabaret that plays all six New York cabaret venues simultaneously. Okay, you had me until simultaneously. Now I think you're pulling my leg. <laughs> so you will see ten different companies at ten different theaters, all singing "It's Miller Time," the music of Roger Miller. Um, but honestly, that's a great idea because it's it's niche and it's unique and it's specific. Yeah. And nobody likes country music, but Ethan Steimel happens to like country music. H- how I'm in musical theater, I don't know. No, people, people, okay, here's the thing. I don't think people realize. If you like it, there's other people out there that like it too. And they're waiting for this because they'll be like, oh, you know, it's it's Roger Miller. Unique is good. Okay, so you pulled our leg a little bit, but I will announce that Rob Schneider and I will be producing Miller Time, <laughs> an evening of Roger Miller, and that will be a very successful cabaret, which will eventually lead us to transferring it to Broadway for at least one night. We will break into the 40, the Hamilton Theater. We will break into the Richard Rogers. We will perform it on the Hamilton set for one night only. Please donate to Ethan's Patreon, as we will need bail money. <laughs> And a good attorney. <laughs> oh, I hope there's attorneys that are listening and willing to take on this case. <laughs> Mark Sendroff, if you're out there, yeah, please. Oh my gosh, have you had Mark on the podcast? I have. I actually haven't had any theater attorneys, and I need to because Jason Aylesworth, I think, would also. Be oh good. yeah, Jason. Mark is great. Mark would be yeah, and Jason would be great too. But if you want a, a connection to Mark, let me know. Is there anything else? Did we talk about everything you want? Did we talk about numbers that you wanted, finance you wanted? We we did. If there's any numbers that you have, I always love numbers. But actually, I remembered the important question. Yes. Because you said Miller time. It reminded me that copyright, how do you purchase the rights to songs? Like uh, if you buy the sheet music, does that count as buying the rights? That's such a great question. Um, I think pretty much all cabaret venues have an agreement with ASCAP and BMI who are the ones that license the, the, the songs of composers. And so what'll happen is, is every year, the venue will pay ASCAP a fee. And that's sort of a blanket agreement that they can use any sort of songs and not have to pay them because you've already paid your flat fee for it. Okay, so, and do you have, I assume there's a library that you have to choose from of songs. Not, not necessarily because just about every, every single song that's ever been copyrighted is gone through ASCAP or BMI. It all falls under a blanket agreement. But I will say, I will say, in this day and age, it is so important. You you don't want to go forward with something without having checked first. If you're like, hey, I'm going to do all the songs Jason Robert Brown cut from his musicals. And if Jason Robert Brown is like, "Uh, no, you're not. You kind of want to know that before you've announced it and you've sold tickets to it. So if, if, it's, if it's something like that where the author is still alive or still working, you really want to check with that. And I will say this. I'm going to the Forestburg Playhouse to do a review. And they put, like, Chaz Wolcott is the... Chaz is directing it, and he also wrote it. What's the review? It's uh, They made it from scratch. Oh, okay. I can talk about that. That's a whole different ballgame. Okay, that, and that's what I was going to say is he was very limited in his... Uh, song selections, and I'm guessing that's because of audience size and that it's not a cabaret space. It's an actual theater. No, it's a, you know it's an actual theater that can make tons of money off of the work of an individual. If I'm at 54 Below and I'm like, hey, I'm doing an evening of Billy Joel. It's just an evening of Billy Joel. 
there's no money to be made. Do you know what I mean? It's one night, whatever he would make off of it, I'm sure is like what the, ch- the change Billy Joel finds underneath his sofa. But if you're doing something at a theatrical venue for an extended run and you're making money off of the works of, uh, of a specific artist, they need to be compensated in some way. Yeah, so if you're doing it in a theatrical commercial venue like that, then you do need to get the permission for everything. In fact, what's killing me right now, and I won't, I won't say what it is, I'm working with a writer. They wrote a jukebox musical. It's really good. They want me to produce it. And they have never asked the estate if they could do it. I can't put that in a theater or try to have conversations with anyone because the estate at any second can say, no, you know, we don't want this. You have to keep an open line of communication between the estate or the offices of the songwriter and you. Uh, Do you know the play? Oh, we talked about it at the beginning. Maybe it's a nice way to bookend. The play Our Town. In the 1980s, the gentleman who wrote The Fantastics wrote a musical version of Our Town. Apparently, it has one of the most beautiful scores ever written for the musical theater. But something happened where they either pissed off the estate or they weren't clear with the estate and the estate said, you can never do this show ever again. So there's this beautiful, wonderful score that they, everyone put a lot of work and time and energy into that because something happened with an estate and someone wasn't up front or there was a miscommunication, now it's not allowed to be performed. So you don't want to go so far down the road. And, you know, some people go, well, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Sure, not here. You have to work, and you might also get a bonus for something. You know, if you reach out to Jason Robert Brown and go, hey, I want to do an evening of your cut songs. Are you okay with this? He might write back and say, totally. Can I sing in it? Have you looked at these songs? You might actually have a bonus by reaching out to these individuals. But that's, I find that to be a big problem in those uh, jukebox shows. It's so interesting when they started Rock of Ages, because nobody had ever really done this before, where it was like a cobbling together of the, of this, of the 80s like that. You, you go to Rock of Ages and you're like, oh, why don't they do this song? Or why don't they do that song? Or why isn't this big 80s song in there? It's because all the writers were approached about having their songs in, Broadway, in a Broadway musical. And they were like, no, like we don't do Broadway. And the ones who did have made a ton of money off of it. And that opened the door now in validating other, other people like saying, yeah, you can use my music. So nowadays, it's really not hard to get somebody's catalog. This is a golden nugget from this episode. If someone's going to do this in St. Charles, Missouri, on historic Main Street, picking the venue is important because if it's a cabaret, they're going to have more song options. They're going to have more freedom. Absolutely. And you need to make sure that the theater or whatever you're renting has that agreement. You know, you have to ask them, do you have an agreement with ASCAP BMI for this to happen? And you also need to make sure you credit the right people. Um, I was doing an evening at 54 Below. It was the music of Christopher Guest movies. And I was like, this will be fun. And we put it on social media. And Harry Shearer, you know, Simpsons, also a brilliant guy with the Christopher Guest movies. He tweeted at me. He goes, I guess you don't read credits carefully because more than Christopher wrote these songs. And so we had to, and he was right. He wasn't wrong. He was right. And so we had to change, you know, the title 
to make sure people knew it was the music from the movies of Christopher Guest, not the music of Christopher Guest movie. You know, and it's 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 stuff like that. So you want to make sure you've dotted all your I's and crossed your T's and not have Harry Shearer tweet at you. Yeah, but how cool if he does. <laughs> like, how the fuck is Harry Shearer, because I think he lives in London, sitting in London with his millions of Simpsons money. Why why does he even know we're doing this? This should he this shouldn't even be on his radar. It's so small. Yeah, but this industry is small, baby. Yeah, no, it re- it really, really is. It really. I mean, you already told us that the six, no, the ten, ten, six cabaret venues all talk to each other. You already told us that. Yeah, everybody, t- everybody <laughs> talks to each other, and everybody refers people to each other. Yeah, we all. Yeah, so be nice. Be nice. I don't know if I've taught. I, did I did I say anything of value in this, Ethan? I'm so sorry. Yes, no, no, I'm I'm not kidding. That 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 the uh, about the rights. I mean, just thinking about that, like depending on how you're going to do it, that's important because that's just important in today's day and age where everybody's going to find out who's doing what. Yeah. Yeah, and every estate is fickle. Well, so, sorry, every estate is different. Some are like, yeah, do whatever the hell you want because they they know they're going to make money off of it. And then there are some that are so anal and detailed about protecting the legacy of, you know, their uncle or their father. And sometimes you have to jump through a lot of hoops. Yeah. Well, well, two thoughts here. One is, I think it would be really interesting on this podcast, that jukebox musical that you've left uh, anonymous with the estate. I think that'd be cool to sort of follow tracking the contacting of the estate I, it's 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 really maddening because we did a workshop of the show and you can keep this in if you want we did a workshop of the show and it was received very successfully and there's a venue a theater venue in new york an actual like commercial theater institution that i'm like this would be perfect for their audience this is like right up their alley and we i can't bring it because then i look like an amateur because the first question they're going to ask me is, oh, did the estate sign off on this? If I say no, they're going to go, then wh- why are you here? But ha- but my question is, why? what's holding us back from contacting the estate? I think deep down, fear is, is that the estate might say no. I'm not so invested in it that I'm like, this has to happen. It would just be nice to happen. Every time they want to talk about the show, I always say, have you spoken to the estate. And the answer is no, but it won't be a problem. Or, oh no, it's covered by this. We're going to be okay. And the last thing I want is to put a show on. And then this estate is like, what the fuck are, excuse my language, what the fuck are you doing? And what's hard on this one is it's based around one artist, but the artist collaborated with like 10 other people. So you not only have to get the one person, you then have to deal with the estate's of all the other people. But I, I I just think it would be a cool journey. Like you were saying, everything starts with an idea. I think it would be really cool to follow us. Oh, you, there is this idea, but what's holding it back is the estate. And I just think it'd be really cool to see, see us go like, hey, how do you take this idea and actually move forward with it would be fascinating. I mean, I, I remember really quickly, I apologize, and then I'll move on. We, did, we, were, we were gonna do South Park at 54 Below. Uh, a live action version of the musical. All this work into it, we had a great cast and we got an email from Scott Rudin because he was he was the movie producer on it. And it's like, he was very, <laughs> he's a nice guy. He was very, he was very polite and was like, hey, he goes this, I'm so sorry. He's like, but you know, we're thinking about adapting it and we're not letting anyone do this. So you can't do it. 
we should have checked. You know, I think I, something big like that, we probably should have been like, hey, are you cool if we do this? All right, Rob, this was incredible. We now have to do like three or four follow-up podcasts. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> the other topic. So everyone, uh, welcome Rob, who is our new co-host, and you'll be hearing a lot from... No, no, no. Everyone, everyone now is like, what you listen to on the podcast? Well, this guy said we should send out flyers to people. <laughs> Oh, maybe maybe it's an episode from 1990 that Ethan was replaying. <laughs> nope, I included the date. I included the date. All right. Did, did he talk about postage stamps? <laughs> Sorry. Did he talk um, about how you could telegram people to let them know a show was going on? Yeah, and one of those telephones where you have to hold the ear thing here and then the, exactly. the voice thing somewhere else. Yeah. If you want tickets to the cabaret, call Buffalo 575. Area code? What's an area code? Area code? What's that? Ask for Morty. He's the stage door, Johnny, you see? Is there someone else listening on this potty line? <laughs> I hear breathing. I hear breathing. Hang up the phone there, Mildred. <laughs> and after you buy tickets, don't forget to vote for Ike. I like Ike and so will you. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Okay, so there's a bunch more questions I was going to ask you, but I feel like we have crammed so much into this episode already. Rob, I cannot <laughs> thank you enough. And final question, which is, where can people find out more about you? You can go to my Instagram. It's Rob W. Schneider. And then I host uh, three podcasts. Go take a listen. Uh, one of them is called Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, which is available anywhere you get a podcast, uh, where we interview people who have been in the business for 30 plus years, uh, uh, theater specifically. Um, I have another one called Gay Card Revoked, um, which is about uh, iconic media in uh, the LGBTQIA plus world, uh, which I find fascinating. I like it. And then in September, I'm dropping a new podcast and it's called This Was a Thing, a deep dive into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. I just wrapped recording all 52 episodes for the entire year. Uh, and I'm very excited about it. So I hope people listen. Wow. Okay. And I know you said three podcasts there, but I want to point out uh, Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, because I've listened to that for years and you have some really good episodes. I'll just point out that John Lee Beatty, if you're into scenic design, that's a really good episode. And you recently did a Jules and Peggy. So for any lighting designers, Jules Fisher, Peggy Eisenhower, that episode is really good. Thank you. We had Jules and Peggy on. We had Ken Billington on. And what I really like about Jules and Peggy, if I can, it's, it's them, it's not me. What I, they really were great was they were able to integrate uh, the current BIPOC discussions uh, that we're having right now and how that affects lighting design which I thought was really wonderful. That's fantastic because I listened to the episode. I actually have no memory of that part of it. Oh. I, I must have been focused on different parts of the conversation. I hope our, maybe, maybe our editor cut it. And I, oh, No, no, Jesus. no, 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 no. It's, it's in there. It's in there. It is in there. But I was, for me, I guess I just listened for different things. Peggy was like, everyone needs to be exercising. And then there was interactions with directors. And, I, and so that's sort of what I remembered from it. They were talking about, when they worked with George Wolf for the first time on Jelly's Last Jam, which was him saying that he wanted black to be a color uh, of the lighting and how lighting designers have to be taught to, you know, design for skin tone. And it's something that's not taught and not really discussed. So I was happy that they mentioned that. And Ken Billington is also just a really fun one because Ken, I think, was one of the first to use moving lights in a show. And he tells the story about... Uh, when he showed it to Bob Fosse for the first time 
and Bob Fosse being fascinated that you could have a moving light on stage. That's amazing. I just learned a story from Ken Billington. He was assisting on some show when he was 19. It was 1969. John Lee Beatty said to him, oh yeah, I saw that show and I remember this gobo of like a door closing. It was amazing. And Ken said, oh no, gobos didn't exist then. It was before gobos, so, so it couldn't have been a gobo. <laughs> so somebody left a door open backstage and it, it somehow drifted on stage. And John's like, this is brilliant. I'm sure Ken Billington wants that story out there that he's older than gobos. Like, <laughs> he's the best thing since sliced gobos. That's really funny. And I just feel like I should say, because some non-theater people listen to this podcast, that a gobo in lighting, if you go to a wedding and you see somebody's name up in lights, that's a gobo, the outline, the template, the that. Or or if you're on if you're on stage and you see a shadow of a tree, that's a gobo. You cut out the little design and then you put it into the instrument, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's all la- it's all laser cut now. You don't really it's not so many homemade ones anymore. Well, that's a shame because those were some of my favorites. <laughs> but thank you for plugging my podcast. We're very we're very we're proud of it. We're proud of it. So well, it's, re- it's really good. Like you listen and then you're like, oh, it's two hours later or an hour later. And what have I done? But listen to this quite enjoyable. Also, you have an amazing this is tangent. I'll cut this out. But you have an amazing podcast voice. I wish I had such a voice. You have a wonderful voice for podcasting. Oh, stop. stop. <laughs> no, seriously. No, it fits. It fit, It sounds great. It's. It sounds wonderful. Oh, I'm so. Thank you for complimenting my voice. Yeah, thank it's you. So good. Thank it's so you. Good. Um, I have a. I have a face for radio. <laughs> okay, Rob. Thank you so much. Uh, sharing all your tips and and everything. I feel like I'm confident now that as you and I work together for our Miller time evening of. Roger Miller. Yeah, it's Miller time. Yeah. That I feel confident in being able to produce it. Great. Even if we do end up losing money. Remember, give yourself $2,500. You know, you're going to lose some money. But oh, my yeah. goodness. All right. Well, thank you very much, Rob. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks for having this wonderful show. That was our episode about producing cabarets. As I was editing the episode, I thought of a few more questions that Rob kindly answered via email. So, how much does Rob make as a director of a cabaret? At 54 below, his rate is $750. If he's hired independently, his rate is $1,500. If he is a producer, he will take 50% of the profits and then split the other 50% with the artist. I asked Rob the lowest amount of money he has made producing a cabaret. And the answer is, you guessed it, negative money. He has had to go out of pocket to pay the artists and staff. The most money Rob has made is $15,000. That's because it was produced multiple places. I asked Rob about the budget when he's producing at 54 below versus producing at another venue, and he said that the budget and income are usually pretty similar. I also asked about when he said he pays the artists in cash after the show. He said he always gives the cash option and most people take it or ask for payment on Venmo. So my takeaways from the show were that Rob produces with a budget of 2500 to 3500 The upfront costs can be minimal, especially if the venue is splitting ticket sales. The most important elements to creating a cabaret are the idea, the headliner, and then the venue. And if you try and it's a miss, remember it's just a show. In our patron-only episode, we gossip about set designer John Lee Beatty, getting music rights from artists' estates, and the musical The Bandstand. To access that, go to patreon.com slash artisticfinance. Patrons at all levels get early access to episodes, the extended interviews, and a private podcast feed. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg.
Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.